Welcome, everyone, to the Asia Unbound podcast series. I'm Liz Economy, and I'm delighted to welcome Carl Minzner, professor of law at Fordham Law School and the author of a terrific new book, End of an Era, How China's Authoritarian Revival is Undermining Its Rise. Carl, congratulations on a really wonderful new book. Thank you so much. So let's set the stage a little bit. You argue at the outset of your book that Xi Jinping is unwinding the reforms of the last decades of the 20th century. Describe for us what you mean by that and, and why is he doing that? Sure. The When we talk of China's reform era, we're speaking of China's post-1978 period where China moved out from under the from the Maoist era. And I think when we think about that reform era, we really think of three main characteristics that mark that period. First, of course, is the rapid economic growth, the, you know, the two, 10% GDP growth year on year that extended over, uh, over decades. The second is a certain degree of ideological openness to the outside world, in which after Mao, Deng Xiaoping and his successors decided that China needed to open up to the outside, to create a level of ideological flexibility that would enable it to import and adopt practices from abroad that it thought were useful or important. And the third was a certain degree of political stability marked by, and I'll underline, partially institutionalized political norms. In the 1980s and the 1990s, Deng and his successors sought to move out from the chaos of the, of the Maoist period and adopt norms such as collective leadership, such as uh, retreating from anything resembling a cult of personality. And what's happened, not simply with Xi, but extending back a little bit earlier as well, into the early early 2000s, is a gradual unwinding of all of those things. E economically, China is slowing down. Ideologically, it's closing up. Uh, there's um, there's barriers where Deng once said, we need to open windows in order to, even if flies come in, now it's the reverse. It's we need to close windows even if there's a cost to China. And the third is an unwinding of those partially institutionalized political norms. Uh, some of them have sort of come undone more slowly. Some of them have been dramatic, generated dramatic attention in recent months, such as the uh, repeal of term limits on China's top leader, at least in his role as president. And so I think those are the broad trends that are taking place. You asked the question about why is Xi Jinping doing this? And I think the, one of the key reasons with respect to politics is He's seeking to make things happen in China. He's seeking to concentrate power in his own hands in order to try to push the system forward in order to address what he thinks are looming problems that face China. But what worries me is that in doing so, I think it raises up the possibility that some of the instability that had characterized the pre-reform era might start to come back. Okay, so if we, let's just take that last part of your statement that Xi Jinping is reasserting a greater degree of central control in part because he wants to make the system move forward. What does that mean, making the system move forward? People here often argue that Xi Jinping is a closet reformer, right? So first he has to tighten up and then you know, five years out we're going to see the real Xi Jinping emerge. Is that your argument? I don't think that that's the case. I think that he's, he, I think he is fairly clear about what his intentions are. I mean, he sees, when you, if you think where he came from in the late Hu Jintao era before he came into full power in 2012, he saw a frozen and factionalized political system um, um, where power was split between other party leaders. He also, in his own mind, I mean, he was seeing what had taken place in Eastern Europe, he saw what had taken place in the Soviet Union, and he was worried that the party itself might, its power might be slipping. So I think in his mind, he felt that the only road forward was to re-centralize power in his own hands. I don't think that that leads towards political reform. I think he himself famously said, uh, you know, Gorbachev, no one was man enough to stand up for the Soviet Union. And that's how it un unwound. So I don't think that 
by any stretch of imagination, he is going to engage in any kind of liberal reforms. I think he, to a large extent, sees this this desire to take power back as a core element, to make the party stronger, to strengthen its rule in society. And that's very much where he's going. Right. So that in and of itself is the reform. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So much of the book, and it's really interesting, focuses on underlying challenges. And you uh, point to three, education, well, you point to many, but three of the ones that you address in depth are education, the HUCO system, issues of employment opportunities. How serious are these issues? And do you see Xi Jinping now adopting strategies that are likely to address them effectively? Right. So those um, sort of in terms of the social and economic challenges that are facing China, you could loop all of many of those things into sort of a coherent overall framework. And that's the looming wealth gap, the looming inequality that has built up over the course of the reform era. China, which was once a relatively egalitarian society, has seen that gap between rich and poor expand to levels that approach those in the United States. And you know, dramatically different from what you would have, what you saw in China in the late 70s and early 80s. I think some of the things, certainly there were, there's been some effort, particularly under Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao era, in order to try to extend health coverage uh, to rural peasants, in order to provide some degree of benefits to, 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 to people who hadn't had them before. The problem that I see in China is that the extension of those, as central leaders attempt to move towards addressing some of those problems, they invariably run up against the issues of what about the demands of urban residents, many of whom, for example, don't necessarily want migrant children in their classrooms with their children. They want to sort of retain the social benefits for the existing urban population. I think something that's something that very much is a problem for the party itself, precisely because they don't necessarily want to to irritate, to anger the interests of the established urban elite. In fact, you're seeing this blow up in fairly stark uh, ways over the last couple months with, for example, these expulsions of migrant workers from uh, from Beijing and other mi- major cities in this effort to begin to, you know, sort of drop down the population. And so I, I would say some of these efforts are, in fact, sort of leading to greater pressures against the interests of the rural rural poor and, the, and migrant, migrants. But do you see those expulsions as stemming from the demands of the urban dwellers themselves? I think it's more complicated. I mean, I don't necessarily see it's a direct de- demand on the part of urban dwellers. I do think that there's a fundamental problem, which is the who provides for the public benefits. So, you know, the, the, with respect to the expulsion, the argument is, of course, unsafe dwelling. The argument is of, of, is to fire safety and the like. I think behind the scenes there are there are several concerns. I think one is this overarching concern in stability and the worry that you know the presence of large numbers of people, migrant population, could that potentially be a threat to party interests if there was a discontent? I think there's a desire for prettifying for making the capital city more attractive, and the idea is maybe we clean up some of these things. I think behind the scenes there's also some real complicated issues associated with benefits, which is to say, if you're going to provide education to everyone in the city. Who pays for the children of migrant of migrant workers? Should they be counted as urban, as fully urban residents? And one of the ways of addressing that is, sort of, we're not going to keep them in the city. And so that I think is also one of the elements that's leading to some of these expulsions. And that, of course, engages the Huco reform, which has not proven to be particularly successful. No, I think that what's happened, although there, you'll see lots of things in the, in the press where there's a discussion about HUCO reform, I think if you penetrate behind the pe- HUCO system, of course, a system dating back to the Maoist era that divided the population into, into 
urban and rural populations, urban residents getting preferred benefits, rural residents doing without. That's evolved into the modern period into a situation in which you have flexibility in movement. Migrants can come into the cities, but they're still unable to access education, health, and the services that are provided in the urban areas on the same level that urban residents do. Uh, and although there are these announcements about reform of the hookah system, in practice, many of them are tied to do you have a white collar job? Have you graduated from elite educational institution? And so it doesn't necessarily open up an avenue for migrant workers to obtain full citizenship in the cities on the same level as the established urban population. Right. Now, you also have a very fascinating chapter on religion in China. And, you know, what role do you see it playing in the Xi era? And we've seen this new dance between Xi Jinping and the Pope and the Catholic Church in China. How, how do you see religion evolving? Sure. One of the characteristics, if you think about the reform era, the era which I argue has just, just ended, is the party in the late 70s and early 80s decided to step back compared to the Maoist era from its control. It wasn't as interested in what you believed privately as long as you didn't publicly organize. And what this did is figures such as Ian Johnson have talked about in his recent book, All Souls of China. He's you know, correctly pointed out that there's been a big boom in religion across the board, Christians, uh, Buddhists, and, and, and a wide, you know, sort of a, a reemergence of, of religion. That's, of course, some are the patriotic churches, some are underground or non-registered uh, church movements. One of the dynamics that I think is taking place now is that Chinese leaders themselves recognize that, that Communism itself has sort of become not really an ideology that unites people. It's a series of water cooler banter that, that people just exchange at, at the workplace. It's meaningless slogans that are reiterated. They're in the process of searching for something to replace it. They fear that this ideological vacuum has provided a way, you know, sort of a forum for all sorts of ideological currents from the outside, whether it's Western liberalism, whether it's underground, it's whether it's Christian churches, whether it's uh, Islamic currents from the Mideast, to begin to come into society. And so they're looking for something to replace it. One resort is to just double down on Marxism. But they also, I think, believe that China needs to look towards its own tradition. It needs to look back to traditional beliefs, traditional society, and, and begin to bring this back. You're seeing this, for example, with uh, Xi Jinping's visit in 2013 to Chufu, with the sort of increasing prominence given to Confucian slogans that you're seeing Xi Jinping reiterate. What worries me is that as that pivot starts to happen, I worry that you're going to start to see more and more certain beliefs being designated as non-Chinese, as foreign and more problematic. I think you're already seeing this fairly clearly with what's taking place in Islam out in Xinjiang, <laughs> where it's not just a crackdown now so much on, you know, people expressing separatist sentiment. It's really a full-scale crackdown across the board. I worry that some of that same kind of pivot could start moving in other areas too, to Christian communities and the like. And so I think there are real implications of this ideological pivot. Other areas, you know, the Buddhist groups that might have previously not enjoyed state support are now beginning to get more and more attention from, uh, from, uh, from central authorities and you know, tacit support for some of their activities. So in this regard, when you look at what's happening with the Catholic Church and China today, is that a strategic move on the part of the Catholic Church to develop a, a safe space for Catholics, or are they selling their soul, no pun I, intended? I, I, I tend to think 
that there, there, there's, there's the sense that maybe we can, that there is a sense that maybe we can get into the good graces of, of, of she, of, of party authorities and give some additional space for ourselves. But I really wonder, I mean, I, I really wonder at the end of the day, what, what does that build to? I think that the, the party itself is very interested in keeping control of society, and I tend to think that they're going to be worried about uh, a range of ideological groups that they dream deem foreign. So you're a law professor, and a good chunk of uh, the book looks at Xi's legal reforms. How would you characterize legal reform under Xi Jinping? We use the word reform. What does it mean in this context? Certainly. So I'll sort of, again, just to put it in context, we certainly, for many of us who, who work on legal reform, when we looked at the beginning of the reform era, you saw as part of those moves towards seeking out more institutionalized legal norms, the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, saw the, the Chinese state leaders look for alternative measures to govern their system because they were worried about the chaos of the Maoist era. They were worried about an era in which Mao, what, what the rule was, was what Mao said in the morning. That meant that in the 80s and 90s, the rule of the day was we want more statutes. We want more publicly transparent norms to govern society at large. All of us who were working on, on, in legal reforms, we knew at the end of the day this was a one-party state. This, you know, the party was going to retain the monopoly on political control. But at least in the 90s and the early 2000s, you could think what that might mean would be that there would be some space for the edges of the way power was exercised to begin to be sanded, you know, more clearly. And one of the things that's been come clear over the last decade or so is that Chinese authorities themselves have no truck for that. They're really interested in making sure that none of the legal reforms ever end up bumping up against party norms. So the you know continual crackdown on public interest lawyers is one example. And I think one of the trends that you're seeing now, which I view as even more distressing, is I think, for example, in the recent constitutional amendments, much of the attention was focused on the removal of the term limits. But I think there's an even more important shift that's taking place, and that's the repartization of bureaucracy. So for example, you're seeing moves now to begin to merge the state civil civil service board with the party organization bureau. You're seeing moves to allow the, um, the disciplinary inspection committees to take over functions of the procuratorate, which is the equivalent of the uh, American district attorneys and the like. And I would say that what's happening is essentially the party is beginning to absorb or eat or consume some of those earlier legal reforms. Now, it doesn't mean that chaos is breaking out, but it just means that that, that space that had existed where you could think that maybe certain areas would be resolved by, by reference to legal norms rather than party norms, that's actually being gradually constrained and the party is beginning to come back in in a much more clear way. I expect that many of your listeners who work in business, they'll say the same thing about party selves beginning to play a more important role in business development. And so I think that's one of the overarching trends that's going to continue. So in that context, we should not be optimistic about the establishment of those supervisory commissions sort of set aside from the discipline inspection committees because, what, they're sharing office space, they're sharing personnel, Basically, they're just one and the same. I, I think that they are. They're more. They're absorbing. You're seeing that that concept of the, the disciplinary inspection. They're being. I view the supervisory commissions as essentially a remodeled form of the disciplinary of the of those disciplinary inspection committees that then also absorbs other state functions. So one key thing is they're now going to have the ability to go after a wider range of state employees, not just party members. What about those professors who actually aren't party members? Could they be begin to be targets for some of this uh, anti-corruption activity? Right. Very troubling. Mm -hmm. So one of the 
things I found striking in your book as you begin to look ahead and you, you look at sort of the future of China. You know, a lot of people, and you, you note this, look to South Korea, look to Taiwan as potential models for China, period. You know, a sort of long extended process of democratization you know, over time, and relatively peaceful democratization didn't happen without any conflict. But, but you know, a lot of people look for some hope there. You are not so optimistic. No, I'm, I'm really worried, particularly as you go down that track of the comparison. In fact, it, I mean, it's, I don't think it was crazy to think that there was some possibility of that 15 years ago or so. <laughs> I, I really think that, and, and it, so for people now who are arguing in retrospect about what was happening, I think it's I think it's not appropriate to say, well, this was just always not. I mean, I think Chinese leaders, people within the Chinese system themselves, they were, they didn't want, they, they were engaged in a range, range of reforms in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s because they themselves were worried about what had happened in China's own history. So all of those reforms that I discuss, administrative law reforms, village elections, these were things that weren't pursued by outsiders. These were things that were pursued by Chinese authorities themselves giving some support for this stuff precisely because they were worried about how do we check abuses of power at the local level. The problem that I see is that at each point those reforms moved forward to a certain level. Village elections begin to work their way up the system. Chinese leaders see echoes of Tiananmen Square, see echoes of, of developments outside, and they move in to sort of cut those reforms off at the knees. And I view the real sad thing about that is, is it deprived China of the possibility of some sort of organic evolution in a particular direction. There was a period, for example, if you look back at um, the activities of Xu Jiong or the, the public interest lawyers, Xu Jiong himself, a noted public interest lawyer, in 2003 was serving as a delegate in the, uh, the, the, the Haidian District People's, People's Congress, Congress in Beijing. You could have looked at that era and you could have said, you know, that looks a little bit like the 1970s in Taiwan where you're beginning to see outsiders have some hope that they can move through the actual system, not challenge party power in fundamental ways, but just begin to open up some space and you could play forward a narrative where that slowly develops into something. All those things have been shut down. And it's not just that they've been shut down, as I was mentioning, as you were asking earlier, things are actually unwinding. Fundamental things like the length of term limits on the on top party official, those are going away. So it's not just that those things are shut down. Now the system's kind of consuming itself and eroding fundamental political structures that had been set up in the post in the reform era. So let me go back to your subtitle, How China's Authoritarian Revival is Undermining Its Rise. As I read your book and as you sort of detailed the various structural weaknesses within the system, I thought you were going to conclude that China was doomed. But that is also not where you take the reader. Where do you take the reader? In my short, I mean, I, I yeah, this is the, the everyone, this is the, the Gordon Chang coming collapse of pro China problem. It's, you know, it's, it's crazy to sort of predict like, oh, I know what's going to happen. All I can say is I see building problems. What I see in the short term is a much more hardline, personalized authoritarian regime with many latent problems going underneath it. That makes me worried for the future because it seems to me of course, on the normative side, you worry about what this means for the uh, the rights of the, the the treatment of people within China. But but I think it also makes you worried in the long term about could those weaknesses begin to break forth at some point. And I don't purport to have a timetable. I don't purport to sort of know the future. All I can say is I see that those things building, and it makes me worried that you know in the short term, more hardline, more authoritarian, more personalized system but in the longer term, increasing levels of turbulence. And I just don't know where, I, I can't 
now clearly say there's this hopeful, optimistic future, and the fact that I can't point to that makes me really worried for the, for the future. So let me ask one last question that is maybe unfair because your book is, you know, all about China, very, you know, in-depth and detailed. Okay, what should we be doing about this, if anything? Is there a role for the outside world in China's domestic development? Absolutely. And I think one of the, one of the I've been giving you know, several talks recently, and I, I think, you know, one thing when you're thinking about the developments in China, I think it also helps to recognize that this, I'm, not, I'm talking, of course, about political erosion in a one-party state, but this, this concept shouldn't be unfamiliar to others who work on other systems. I mean, if you think about, I could tell a story about the United States, where sort of the last two decades of the 20th century saw a fusion of money and party, party, party politics that ended up, you know, leading to uh, political dysfunction, ended up to leading to political po- polarization, lead, ended up leading to, you know, gradual erosion of our own political norms, and that eventually gave rise to you know, phenomena that should be familiar to what we're seeing in the States. The story in the United States or India or the Philippines is a story of bottom-up populist movements that are unwinding our liberal democratic, challenging our little liberal democratic norms. And that story in China is a top-down one. But I do think it's important for those of us in the United States who are worried or interested in China, developments in China is we have to hold to our own norms. I mean, you know, I certainly think there's, there are folks in China who point to developments in the United States and say, well, this clearly indicates, not just or Europe or elsewhere, and so this is, indicates the failure of the liberal democratic project. And I guess one of the reasons why doing the comparison is important is for people to realize it isn't just China or the United States. There are people in both systems, both in China and the United States, who are worried about the fundamental unwinding of our political systems. And those of us who believe in the concept of liberal democracy, believe in the concept of institutionalized political rule, we've got a lot in common in terms of like trying to uphold these norms. And so I guess for the Americans, it's stick to our own values. Like we got to work on making our own system function, or we're just going to become poster child for those in China who would argue, you know, a more authoritarian personalized dictatorship is the way to go in the future. All right. Well, a good call to action to our current government, I would say. Carl, I want to thank you really uh, just a, a great book and so full of, you know, on the ground detail and information. I think uh, a really a must read for anybody who wants to know what's going on in this country that is so important, not only to itself and to the U.S., but also to the entire world. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.